Uh, it's been almost six months, almost a half year since we've been in Hebrews, and uh, so it would be easy to uh, maybe lose track of the argument of Hebrews. We always want to remember, uh, oftentimes we use the modern chapter and verse system to chop these books up, but this was an epistle. It was a letter written to a congregation of believers, and so the letter has an argument and a flow to it that we need to recall and, uh, and at least be in keeping with as we uh, break new ground next week. And so as we think about this, I want us to remember, if you will, in a macro sense, what the overall letter is about, and then uh, we'll look in a, in a more micro sense at an overview of uh, the verses that Ben read for us a moment ago. I would remind you that we won't be exhaustive today in this because we preached three sermons on the text we're covering today uh, about six months ago, and so you can find those online if you want more depth. We're just looking at an overview here uh, to be prepared for next week. But as a general overview of the macro argument of Hebrews, we recognize that this letter is written to a church somewhere of Hebrew Christians. These are Christians who are ethnically Jewish, who came to believe that the gospel is the truth, and that it tells about the Messiah that they had long awaited, which was Christ Jesus. And so they, of course, coming to this, see Christ as the fulfillment of everything they were promised. All the shadows, all the types and shadows that were given in the Old Testament are pointing, as it were, to Christ. And therefore, they see Him as the one who is the antitype, the fulfillment of those things. He is the substance, if you will, to use the language that we're going to be looking at very much on Wednesday nights of type and antitype and shadow and substance. He is the substance that their shadow pointed to. Now, that is in no way to say that they weren't important in their own right. Moses was important. The author of Hebrews makes that clear. Moses was an esteemed servant of God. Moses was a steward over God's house. But Christ is the Son who reigns over the house. And so we see here the argument that it escalates and that the, the antitype is greater than the type who pointed to that antitype. So we see this all along. They've recognized Christ as the fulfillment of all those things. And so they saw it very much that if we're to be faithful Jews, we must be Christians. We must be believers in this new covenant because it is the end of everything the Old Testament pointed to. It's what Paul argued, isn't it? The end of the law is Christ Jesus. The telos, the, the aim, the thing the law is pointing to is Jesus. And therefore, the recognition is if we are going to obey the Old Testament command and everything that was pointing to, we would then accept Christ. We would recognize Him as the long-awaited Messiah. Now, this was not without cost to them. We need to recognize this. Even though they had not entered the persecution they're beginning to deal with now in the text, they had some, some cost. We'll see that in the text today. They dealt with some derision, if you will. They lost relationships. They uh, had people pointing at them and mocking them. They dealt with all those things, and they joyously dealt with them. Something has happened since then that the persecution has not let up and, in fact, maybe has worsened to the point in which now they are considering that the logical response is to disassociate with the church and reassociate with the synagogue. Now, you can imagine the arguments that you would make. It's safer there. And besides, right, I mean, we're saying all this flows out of the Old Testament. It's the same God. 
It's the same promises. And so we can safely go back there and nobody will be upset. But this author, writing to them, says, no, you haven't understood. You see, when you have the fullness of what was promised, you can't go back to the promise. When you have the antitype, you can't go back to the type. When you have the substance, you cannot go back to the shadow. Because to do so would be to say it's not sufficient. Either God didn't give us all that He promised in the substance, or it isn't good. See how that argument could flow out of this? It was better that we go back. Better that we go back. Now, the author of Hebrews says that language, if you're a faithful Jew who knows your Old Testament Scriptures, should sound very familiar to you. In fact, it's a large exposition of this text where he says, wasn't that what our fathers said in the wilderness? It's better that we go back. We'll disregard all the grace that God has shown us in fulfilling His promise to Abraham to bring us out of slavery and take us into a land of promise. We'll say no thank you to all of that and we'll just go back into Egypt because wasn't it more comfortable there? Is that not at the end the argument? Why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? And at least in Egypt we have food to eat. It was more comfortable there. So let us return. Let us go back. What did the author of Hebrews say happened to that generation? They died in the wilderness outside the promise. He's making a clear illustration to us here, isn't he? To turn away from what God has given to say the fullness is not good enough for me, I'll go back to the promise and wait for something else, is to say, God, I don't care about your will or the fulfillment that you have planned. I reject it. I want no part of it. And he says, we have an illustration from our own history to know what becomes of such behavior. You will be outside the promise. Outside the promise. Now, it's important to recognize that this Warning given in this text over and over, and there are stern warnings. We dealt with them as we went through. There are stern warnings. Those warnings are given for what purpose? Not to say, oh, you can really walk away and lose your faith. That's not a biblical argument. But these warnings are given to be taken seriously. They are the means by which God gets the attention of His people to wake them up to what they are about to do, that if they did it would be disastrous. The same warnings that we see often in Scripture. And, in fact, it's often God's means to use these methods to get our attention. You can think of Jesus oftentimes in the middle of teaching using very stark or bold language to get uh, the attention of those listening. Yes, some were Pharisees and maybe uh, not those who would listen anyway, but there were some there Jesus was trying to get a message across to. I think he was getting a message across to everyone there, but a, a more pointed message. So think about this for a moment. We need to recognize it's, what Martin Lloyd-Jones called a doctor, and he was a medical doctor, so he knew something about this, grabbing you by your lapels and shaking you because you're not listening. Do you not hear me? If you don't take this medication, you're going to die. I don't know how often doctors really grab you and shake you nowadays, but uh, certainly they might give you a forceful warning of what they perceive the road to be you're on if you don't listen. And my friend, sometimes we are called to, and the Scriptures certainly give us such things. And so, again, the, the reminder here that he is giving is not only that there are fearful warnings if you walk away, but also that the faith of Israel was a hopeful faith. It was a faith born out of hope. 
It was given with promise. From the very beginning, we've looked at these countless times. The Proto-Evangelium, right, in the, in the garden, that there would be a Savior who would crush the serpent's head, the promise to Abraham, and so on and so forth. So many to recount. We know them well. Those were hopeful promises. God would fulfill His Word. He would keep His covenantal promises. And therefore, always Israel looked forward to what God was going to do. What this author is saying is, all those things have come to fruition in Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the one of David's lineage, the one who would rule and reign on David's throne. And now what you're doing is saying, thanks but no thanks. We'll find something else. He says, if you could do that, if you really did that, what it would mean is to walk away from the faith. And we're going to see in today's text what he has to say about that. It's pretty serious. But we need to recognize that what he's saying is that you can't go back to the synagogue and stand in Christian testimony. If we are saved by faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, then you can no longer testify to that in the synagogue. Because to join there, you'd be saying, no, we find our salvation in another means or in another person that would still be yet to come. And this author says you can't do it. You must stand in the church. You must accept that Christ is the fulfillment of all these typological arguments. You must recognize that He is the substance of everything God promised. And therefore, not be like those in the wilderness, but be like those few I guess Caleb and Joshua who got to enter and that next generation. And so our author's reminding us of this and, and warning us very sincerely to take this and heed this warning. It's the means by which God is rescuing His people from disaster. And so I want to come back to this text again. I want to read it one more time and then we'll begin to walk through it. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled uh, the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing 
that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen. As we, uh, as we exposit this text today, I want us to look at two points. First of all, cling to Christ. And second of all, live by faith. As we begin this, we recognize immediately in the text today that we begin with a list of the benefits that we receive in Christ. In fact, we should be encouraged to see this, that there are benefits, there are things that we are given in Christ that are glorious and joyous. And in fact, you see immediately that we are encouraged to have boldness when it comes to entering the holiest place by the blood of Jesus Christ. By what Christ has accomplished, we can enter this holiest place, which by the way, in an old covenant way of thinking, would be impossible, would be impossible. And in fact, the author of Hebrews has exposited that at length before this. We won't go into all of it, but just simply to say this. In the Old Covenant, only one person could enter the holiest place, and that was the high priest. And he had to follow all the rules. He could do it one time a year, one day a year, and only then after going through all the rituals that were dictated to be able to do it, to be registered as clean uh, and therefore able to enter the holiest place. And he had an important mission when he did that there, but, but recognize this, that there was a veil placed over that holiest place, a curtain, if you will, that was thick and heavy and was a symbol, if you will, that it barred access to that place. In other words, the message of it was keep out. You knew that if you went beyond the boundary of that curtain, death was your sure end. Uh, we can uh, think about that uh, even for the high priest. If the high priest entered the day after the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur plus one, he would have dropped dead. If he had stayed um, past the bounds of the time he was given to be in that place or didn't enter by the way that God told him to enter, if any of those things had taken place, he would have died in the presence of God in the holiest place. So that's what the Old Testament taught. There is a holiness of God, and there is no doubt about that. The Scriptures tell us God is holy and we are sinners, and to be in the presence of a holy God would mean our undoing. Woe is me, Isaiah said, for I'm a man of unclean lips and of a people of unclean lips when he entered into the presence of the Lord. And so we see this principle over and over again. But what's interesting here is something is different in the New Covenant. Something has fundamentally changed, the author tells us, because now we are told no longer to keep away or to keep outside the curtain or not to approach the curtain, but we are told actually boldly come in behind the curtain. In fact, you are anchored in behind the curtain. Notice what he says there. That... Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, we should do so. But we don't enter on our own merits. We don't enter by anything that we have earned. We enter by the blood of Jesus. What He alone accomplished, what He accomplished in His holiness, 
as being the only spotless Lamb of God. What He accomplished as our messianic king and priest by His work here, fulfilling the plan and will of God to come as the messianic king, to go back to Hebrews chapter 1 to say that after He had done all these things, then He sat at the right hand of the Father. The one who offered the perfect sacrifice and did so, if you will, in the heavenly tabernacle. He, the high priest of that tabernacle, bids His people enter, come near, and come boldly. There may not be a more stark difference you can see between the two covenants than that. One covenant that says almost no one can enter, you certainly can't, and one that says all the Lord's people freely and boldly come into the presence of our King. So my friends, we recognize this. Immediately we see that there is something dramatic that's happened. We see that renting of the veil in the crucifixion and death of Christ. We recognize that this itself is a type. It's a type in this sense that something physical did happen. A type always has something that actually happened. It's not a myth. The temple veil rent in two. There's a real physical thing that happened but it also symbolizes something that happens spiritually. That in what Christ accomplished by His perfect life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His enthronement, that now His people are able to enter in freely. Enter in freely. My friends, that is a glorious truth. He has cleansed the way, this author says. Now, if you want to learn more about that, go back and listen to the sermons in this chapter. But... There was a cleansing aspect to the Yom Kippur event. The tabernacle, the holiest place, was cleansed. And what it says here is Christ has cleansed the way for us. We're still sinners. We don't stand in our own standing. Praise the Lord for that. We stand in His perfectly righteous standing. And His blood has cleansed our access, if you will, to this holiest place through Him. And so we see that, and we have this high priest that Hebrews at length exposited. He is always there interceding on behalf of his people. He is our high priest. He is our advocate. He is there on our behalf. What glorious truth this is. And he says that we can draw near in full assurance. How can we have full assurance? If you ever wrestle with assurance, it's found right here. Is why you don't have to. You didn't merit access to God in the first place. You didn't merit your salvation in the first place. You never stood in your own righteousness before God. To be saved and to trust in Christ means to be placed in Christ. To stand in Him and His perfect righteousness. That is the assurance that we have. I'm not going to misstep tomorrow and somehow lose that. I am Christ. I stand in His perfect righteousness by faith. And therefore we can have assurance. We can draw near with assurance because God doesn't change. Christ can't lose His righteousness. And if I'm in Him, I can't lose mine that I have by faith. And so my friends, as you look at all of this, this should give us hope and confidence. That's the point of it. To recognize and understand what we have in Christ. And yet, obviously the message here is to do what? Well, look at verse 23. 
let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He means here, hold what we confessed, what we had hope in, that is in Christ and salvation in Christ. Hold on to that confession. Don't give it up. You see what he's saying here? To go back to the synagogue would mean to give up that confession. You're no longer saying everything I need is in Christ. You're saying what I need is over here, away from Christ. And if we're going to hold fast to that confession, we need to recognize that it's saying we need to cling to Christ. Recognizing that He alone is our salvation. He alone is our hope. And as we do that, we recognize we do that in the church. In the church. In the body of the church. It's no coincidence that that text that we quote all the time falls here. Because he tells us, let us hold on to our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another, be mindful of one another, notice that, in order to stir up love and good works. What is our rightful duty before God? Well, it's obviously to give him glory and praise. That is the chief end of man, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But the mission he's given us within the church is to stir and build up one another. Outside the church, it's to evangelize, to tell others about our great king. But within the church, we are to love one another and build one another up and encourage one another. And notice he says that. And notice exactly with that offset here, he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Why? Because you can't live a Christian life outside the church. That might be controversial in modern America, but it is the truth. The Bible says it. The people of God are meant to be gathered together, to live life together, to be unified, to be upbuilding one another, to be encouraging one another. That is what we are called to do. And so as we see this here, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is manner of some, but exhort one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. As we think about that glorious day, Let us build one another up, exhort one another, encourage one another, teach one another, love one another, fellowship together. That is the calling. And then we come back to a terrible warning. Why? Because to not do this is to not heed the message. It's to not heed the warning. And notice how he frames this. It's very important to think about the Old Testament context here. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now that can be misinterpreted. I would say go back and, and listen to the sermon on that for more on that. But just simply to say this is a recalling of the Old Testament. If you sinned by omission or commission, there was a sacrifice for that. In other words, if you misstepped, if you should have known better, if you accidentally sinned, certainly. But even if you sin knowingly, but what it means here is under passion or whatever it may be, there was a sacrifice. But there was in the Old Testament something that there was no sacrifice for. And that was for what it called sinning high-handedly, sinning brazenly against the living God. To say, I know what God says, and I know why He says it, and I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. Moses was told there is no sacrifice for such a sin. Now that is scary language, and people often misinterpret that and say, oh, if you know something's wrong and you do it, there's no coming back. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. But it is a reminder that if you have 
sufficient knowledge to know something is absolutely commanded against by God. And he means here specifically apostasy, right? That's what he's referring to here. If you know that Christ is the Messiah, you've come into the community of the people of God, you've experienced the love of that community, you've experienced everything that community has to offer so that you've seen it clearly, and you say it's not enough. On the day of judgment when you stand before God, what excuse can you have? What can you say? There was some element I didn't know, I didn't see, I didn't partake in. By your own testimony, you have full knowledge of everything that the church has to offer. You say you understand all the arguments, all the typological arguments, all the the shadow and substance arguments. You understand all of it and you say, I don't want it. I reject it. He says, be careful. You're on a precipice, right, that there's no coming back from. Now, we could talk about what Romans adds to this discussion and the idea of kind of being shoved along after your own desires. But this is a fearful warning to people. It should be. That there is a point at which God gives you up, gives you over to your own desires. It's an evidence you were never His. Those who went out from us were not of us. For if they were of us, they would not have gone out from us. So if you are of God and you are thinking about walking away, you're thinking about turning your back on Christ, hear and heed this message. That's why it's given. If you notice, he frames it so we can understand this. He says that there's simply a fearful expectation of judgment, fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. Think of several times that God sent fire to devour his enemies. But think about this. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, if you publicly rejected the law of Moses, publicly rejected it, said, I want nothing to do with it, I want to be absolved, taken out of it, then you were to be put to death in the Old Testament. That's what... The scripture said, and what our author says is, how much more are you worthy of a greater punishment if you do that to greater revelation? If that was the punishment for simply going against the old covenant, and it might be helpful to think about 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 3, and 4, where he compares the two covenants. He says, it's the glory of the old covenant as if it had no glory at all when compared in the light of the new covenant. That the old covenant was external, written on, he uses the, the term there, tablets of stone, not like the new covenant which was written on sarks or flesh heart. See, Paul is going at length to say there is something different about the new covenant. It is not like the former covenant. There are distinguishable differences. One was external. It did not have uh, efficacious power. It could not create in the person himself what it called for that person to be. Whereas the new covenant, he says, is unlike that one. It is internal, written on the heart, a changed heart, a transformed heart with the powerment of the Holy Spirit given to you that you might be transformed and be conforming to the image of Christ. And therefore, it is different. So if you rebelled against the first and were worthy of death, what will happen to those who rebel against this? That is a serious warning. And listen to how he frames that those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot. You think going back to the synagogue doesn't make a testimony about Christ? You don't think the world is going to say something about Christ? Well, you know, when Rick left uh, Christianity for what other religion he goes to, let's say uh, Judaism, he's saying Christ wasn't the Messiah. He isn't the one that God promised. Well, my friends, 
That says a lot, doesn't it? If we walk through John's gospel to say you love the Father but hate the Son is not possible. You love the Father and you love the Son or you hate the Father and the Son. For if you knew the Father, you'd know me, Jesus said. There is a statement here that you are making whether you intend it or not. It is a testimony of the rejection of Christ. And notice what else he says. You have counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. You've said, oh, the blood of the new covenant, it's not so special. It's not so special. And my friends, as we walk through this study on Wednesday nights, you're going to see that we're going to argue that the blood of that covenant is uniquely special. It's the blood of Christ himself. And so when you recognize that, to call it common, not special, is the worst kind of blasphemy you could ever say. The worst kind of blasphemy you could ever say. And so again, he's warning here, that's what you're saying. If you walk away, that's what you're saying. You've insulted the Spirit of grace. Now, having seen all of that warning and how it, it leads itself up to it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, it certainly is. It reminds us that his argument here is cling to Christ and live by faith. How do we cling to Christ? It's by living by faith. What you'd be doing if you walk away is to not live by faith. Because faith sees beyond the difficulties of the moment. It sees the, the larger purpose. It trusts God and His providence. It trusts what God is at work to do. And so you cling to Christ by living by faith. And that's what's fit for you to do. He says immediately to recall the previous times when you willingly endured trial. I said it in the sermon, when they first became Christians, they dealt with hardships. He says it, doesn't he? He says, remember your former days in which after you were illuminated, in other words, after you became a Christian, you endured a great struggle with suffering. You struggled, you suffered. Partly while you were made a spectacle by, both by the reproaches and tribulations. So in other words... People were mocking you, making you a spectacle. You were going through trials and tribulations, and you endured them patiently. And I dare say even joyfully you endured them. People mocked you. You said, hey, I'll happily be mocked if I'm standing with Christ. Happily mocked. I'll endure whatever they want to throw at me if it's for Christ's sake, if I'm standing in Christ. In fact, notice what he says. And partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. We talked in our church history class two years ago when we did early church history. We talked about one of the unique things about the Christians in the early church was if they were walking out in public and a fellow Christian was being harassed for being a Christian, they didn't walk by. They went over and stood next to him and said, I too am a Christian. If you're going to mock him, mock me. Very different from what we see out of Christians today. But they wanted to be associated, even if it meant they would endure trial and tribulation and spectacle. He says that's how much you were committed to Christ, that when you saw other people suffering, you joined in with them and became their companions. And Paul says, I know this, or the author of Hebrews says, I know this firsthand, because you had compassion on me in my chains. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own goods. You had compassion when I was in trouble. You had compassion on me. And if they came and they took everything you had, You bore it joyfully. How could you do that? Because you knew that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. I can lose all earthly things as long as I know I'm Christ. 
I can bear whatever loss it might be. That's what Paul argues. I could bear any loss. You know, it's one of the reasons we hold up Job so much in the Old Testament, isn't it? Job bore all those losses. And the devil was wrong, right? He couldn't make him curse God, no matter how many people tried to get him to do that. Again, can we say that? Can we say we would lose all things, not just lose all things, but lose them joyfully for the sake of Christ? He says they could have, but something's happened. They've changed. They've changed. My friends, it's something that we have to watch out for. We can change. Oftentimes in our Christian walk in the early days, we were on fire for Christ. We're reading the Scriptures every day. We are, the church doors can't be opened often enough. right? We're looking for new meeting times. What can we do? Where can we be of service? And then slowly something can happen to us. Next thing you know, eh, might go, might not go. Eh, they can find somebody else to do this or do that. Right? There's something that can happen to us. And so we need to recognize that, that it's a beginning of a potentially bad end and that we need to hear this. We need to recognize the truths of Scripture even speak to us. There are warnings to us. You think, well, I would never apostatize from the gospel. Well, these believers would have said that at one time. See, it's those who persevere to the end that will be saved. That doesn't mean it's your work of persevering that saves you. It means perseverance is the evidence that God has saved you, that you're a transformed person, that you're a person of true and living faith. And so we need to realize when we see this is, he's saying, go back to what you once were. Go back to the faith you once lived by and exhibited. For you were all these things that we would hold up as an example to others. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. My friends, here is a message to every one of us. What we need is endurance. And you're not going to build yourself up enough to get it. It's not like a, an athlete where you sit here and say, well, if I just jog every day and I increase my time of, uh, or my length of jogging and my length of time jogging and cut down the intervals, then over time I'm going to be able to run further and further and further. There is an element of that in our sanctification. But what this author is saying is you can have no perseverance, no endurance whatsoever without faith. Without faith. Faith is the source that leads to all the other things that God is doing. When God is at work in you, it's through faith. When God is building you up, it's through faith. When God is sanctifying you, it's through faith. When you sit here and say, you know, uh, I need to turn my back on this sinful thing I've been engaged in that's not helping my walk of sanctification, that is a statement of faith. A statement of faith. And so, my friends, what we recognize here is this author is saying you need endurance, and that endurance can only come how? By faith. You want the evidence of that? He quotes the Old Testament. One of the great texts of the Old Testament from the prophet Habakkuk, a text that you probably know well, it's quoted in the New Testament. We often hear it just that part, the just shall live by faith. We ask, well, what does it mean to be dikaios, to be right or righteous before God? What does, it, what does it mean? It means being a person of faith. That's what it means. And Habakkuk came to learn that because the prophet Habakkuk lived in a time when he couldn't understand anything that God was doing. Nothing that God was doing made any sense to him at all. And in fact, he cried out, God, 
Why are you letting all these things take place? And God said, don't worry, I've got a plan. I'm working it out. God gives him an answer. He says, don't worry, all this unrighteousness that you don't like, I'm going to take care of. And then he reveals how he's going to take care of it. Habakkuk doesn't like that either. He has more questions. But at the end, what is the message of Habakkuk about? At the end of the day, God's people trust God. At the end of the day, we recognize we don't see all things. And therefore, if we are going to live, we must live lives by faith. And you see this, and yet for a little while, and he who is coming will come. The answer you're looking for, Habakkuk, is on its way. Now the just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This tells us several things that we need to think about and apply to our own lives all the time. What God says in the Scriptures will come to pass. When He says in Romans 8 that He is working all things together for good to those who, are, uh, who love Him or those who are the called according to His purpose, He means it. He will do it. Even if in the little moments of that we can't see it, as Habakkuk couldn't see it, we are called to believe God to believe His providence, to believe His goodness, to believe that He is working these things out. He was in Habakkuk's day. Everything that Habakkuk ultimately wanted to happen would come to pass. What was he really wanting? He was wanting an Israel that was faithful, an Israel that was godly, an Israel that had a heart after God's heart. That all came to pass. It just didn't happen in the way or the timing that Habakkuk expected. And that's okay because if Habakkuk had eyes of faith, he could have seen that. If it's not happening the way I would expect, it's because in the providence of God, it's going to happen a way other than I expect. And generally, God works in ways other than we expect because His ways are not our ways. But he says this, the righteous ones, the just ones, the ones who have right standing before me are those that live by faith. It means those living by trusting in God. I can't see it. My friends, I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't even tell you that I'll be here tomorrow. The Lord might call me home tonight. He might call you home tonight. None of us know. But what I do know is He knows. And I trust Him. I trust Him. I put my faith in Him. And I pray you do too, because that's what this is all about. Put your faith in Him. And if you put your faith in Him, you can endure the trials and the tribulations and the difficult days. Because it doesn't always have to work out the way you expect it to. You can say, whatever valley I'm in, God's still in control. I want to say this. He has confidence in these people. Notice the last verse. We are not those who draw back. We're the ones who what? Believed the saving of the soul. Important note there, right? He's given away the ending here. He believes that they're Christians and that they are not going to walk away. But how does all this tie into chapter 11? This is nothing new. There is nothing new about trials and tribulations and tests of faith. It is how God has always worked. Abraham didn't have trials and tribulations. David didn't have trials and tribulations. Elijah didn't have trials and tribulations. No, in fact, if there is a consistent story throughout all Scripture of God's people, it's that they've had trials and tribulations, and how did they deal with them? 
That's the question. Chapter 11 is going to answer it for us. They dealt with it by faith. The very prescription he's giving them here. You're going to have obstacles. You're going to have difficulties. Be faithful. Be faithful. Trust God. Even when you can't see what he's bringing together, what he's doing, trust God. Because that's how the righteous live. By faith. And so my friends, I want you to think about this because we're getting ready to turn into this 11th chapter. Just like in Habakkuk's day, what we need, what they needed, and what we need today is faith. A living faith. Faith that's the key to understanding all that God is doing. A faith that says, if I don't understand what God is doing, I trust Him anyway. A faith that is a living faith. A faith that we will look at as we move ahead into the 11th chapter.